My prayer is that we would have hearts that would be abandoned for Christ, meaning I love him more than anything else in this world, more than any job, more than any uh, person, more than any um, hobby that I have. My heart's abandoned to Christ. I, I love him and I stand in awe of him. I would like for you to stand with me. I'm going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you would stand, I'm going to start reading at verse 14 uh, down to verse 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 14 through verse 22. Apostle, Apostle Paul is writing, and he says this to his readers at the church in Corinth. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Father, in these few verses are packed tremendous truths about what it means to participate in the Lord's table, in communion, in the Lord's supper. And the implications that has then on our lives as believers when we go into other settings. Father, I pray that as we study this text, difficult, yes, but applicable for sure, I pray that we would have a firm understanding by your spirit of what you're teaching us here. I pray that you would help me to teach well and, and to preach well and that by your spirit you would equip us to have illumination in our hearts to understand and not only to understand but to obey. We trust what you say and then we obey it. We trust and obey. Father, help us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. For those of you that are visitors this morning, we are working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians and we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 10, concluding, almost concluding, we have one more time in this chapter, uh, concluding this section of scripture where Paul is talking about what it means to exercise Christian liberties, what it means when you and I experience those gray areas in our Christian walk and how we ought to conduct ourselves in those areas. So we find ourselves here where the issue was meat being offered to idols. 
We don't have that in, in our particular culture, but certainly we can apply the principles that he's describing here, and that's what we're going to attempt to do uh, this morning. Now, let me start off by saying this. Satan's sole desire is to receive worship that's due to God. It is Satan's one goal in life to receive the glory and the fame and the worship that God alone rightly deserves. In Isaiah 14, we read about Satan's attempt to overthrow the rule of God. Let me just, you don't have to turn there. Let me just read these two verses for you. We see Satan in heaven thinking about and contemplating how he's going to overthrow and why he wants to overthrow God's throne. He says this, You said in your heart, speaking of Satan, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see, Satan desires to be like the most high. That's his goal. He wants the glory. He wants us to worship him and not God. So when when Jesus came to earth and he began his earthly ministry... Satan knew that he must take out this Jesus if he wanted the worship of people because Jesus stood in the way between him and God, between the people and God. So he wanted to discredit Jesus. He wanted to get Jesus to fall. It's interesting that Satan used the same lies on Jesus that he uses today. I I want you to catch this. I want you to listen to this. The same lies that Satan uses today, he used on Jesus. The lies of health, wealth, and prosperity. Those show up in the wilderness when Satan leads Jesus out there to tempt him. Catch this. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus with health. Listen to this. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter, that is Satan, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. What's he tempting him here with? He's tempting him here with health. He thinks if I can get Jesus to fall for an idol of health, wanting his health more than he wants to please God, then I've got him. Jesus rightly answers, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He puts Satan away. So Satan tries again in the next two verses. This time, he tempts him with fame. He tempts him with prosperity. He says this, The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is Satan tempting him with here? He's tempting him here with fame. He says, Jesus, if you will throw yourself off the pinnacle and thousands of angels just appear out of nowhere and they sort of swoop down and they catch you and they lift you up, wow, you'd be famous. People would talk about that event for years. You'd have all the fame and prosperity you ever wanted. Tempts him with that, with fame. And Jesus says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Pass that test. 
Satan tries one more time. This time he tempts Jesus with wealth. Devil, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus, I can give you great wealth. All of these cities, all this wealth that you see, it's in my domain. And if you will just but worship me, I will give all these to you. Very tempting. Of course, we know Jesus didn't fall for this. What did he say? In Matthew 4, verse 10, he says, Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Health, wealth, and prosperity. All of those things, the same lies Satan uses today, he used on Jesus then to try to get Jesus to bow down and to worship him. Well, Jesus didn't fall for it. Jesus faithfully obeyed God. He faithfully looked to God for his, for his help, for his sustenance. He faithfully obeyed God all the way to the cross. And when Jesus went to the cross and he died, Satan danced with glee because he thought he finally had him. For three days, Satan celebrated because he thought that the one thing that stood between him and worship was gone. For three days, Satan had a heyday. But when Jesus rose up out of the grave, Satan could not believe it. Everything that he'd hoped for, everything that he dreamed of, came crashing down on that third day when Jesus rose from the grave. And as people began to come to Jesus and repent of their sins and by faith believe in Jesus, one by one they began offering their worship to Jesus. Satan knew that if I'm ever going to get the worship of the people, I am going to have to discredit and disfame and wipe out the name of Jesus. He hates Jesus. It's his sole aim in life to get the glory of God and in order to do that, he must rid the nations of this Jesus. If Satan can remove Jesus, if he can distort him, if he can defame him, if he can discredit him, he will do anything he can to earn his spot in the worship limelight. That's where Satan wants to exist And the most clever way that Satan can do this is to set up false religions that deceive people into thinking they're participating in truth when in reality they're participating in demon worship. This is what Paul is writing about here. This text that we're going to get ready to study here should cause you and I to be on high alert. Why? Because Satan's not dead. Jesus hasn't returned. And so we live in this period when Satan's plot to earn the worship of people continues. He hasn't eased up. He knows that his days are limited. So don't kid yourself into thinking that Satan's not doing today what he was doing back then. He's every bit ramping it up, if not more, than when Paul wrote these words here. So Paul recognizes this and he's pinning these words by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to warn the Corinthians and by application to warn you and I even as we sit in 2012 
that if we begin to abuse our liberties, our Christian liberties, and we begin participating in things that aren't of Christ, we need to be careful because in our exercise of what we think is faith, we may end up falling and disqualifying ourselves in the walk. Here's what's going on in Corinth. These guys are extremely confident of their faith in Christ. They, they, they feel like they are standing firm. They feel like they know the truth. Nothing can deter them from the truth. And so as part of their Christian liberties, they said, you know what? We can return to some of these pagan temples where we used to go and worship. Their thought process goes like this. We know that these idols that exist in these temples are nothing. We know that they mean nothing. They stand for nothing. We know that the meat that's offered to idols, it it doesn't matter if you eat them. So here's what we think, the Corinthians say. We can go into the temples. We can sit while they're having their little worship service. No big deal. And then we can eat of the meat that they pass around because we know that this idol is nothing. We're not participating. We're just, we have every right to go in there. We're, We're Christians. We can handle this. It's no big deal. So Paul's coming along and he's correcting them. Now, if you will look at verse 14, I want you to notice Paul's pastoral heart as he begins to admonish them. In an effort to soften the blow that's getting ready to come, he refers to them as his beloved. He says, Dear beloved, My beloved, those that I love, my children, those that I care about. Look what he says in verse 14. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I have to say. Paul says, I love you. I care about you. I desire for you to stand firm in the faith. So hear me, because you're sensible. You can understand this. I know that you can judge right in this area. Flee from idolatry. Get out. Run. Unequivocally, imperatively, without question, Paul says, flee. Don't participate with idolatry. Idolatry, by the way, is any worship of a god, little g, any worship of a god other than Yahweh. This worship could take a lot of different forms. In the pagan times, they had sticks and stones. They would build into a a shape of an idol and they would worship that. Ultimately, all idolatry stems from the heart. It's any worship of anything that's not from God. It could be covetousness. It could be a surrender to appetite. It could be anything that draws our heart away from worship of God. So when Paul comes along and he tells these Corinthians, flee from idolatry, if we were sitting there with the Corinthians as they were reading this letter, they probably would have said something like this. What's he talking about? (laughs) What does he mean flee from idolatry? We don't participate in idolatry. Why is he writing that there? Where does he get off telling us to flee from idolatry when it's not even an issue in our life? Now, Paul knows that, and he knows that that's what they're going to say. So he begins to lay out his argument of how, in fact, they are participating in idolatry and why it's necessary for them to run. Paul's going to tell them three things 
They're listed in your message notes. If you have message notes, uh, they were in your bulletin. There's three things that Paul is going to tell them in the remainder of our text. Number one, you participate in worshiping something. You always participate in worshiping something when you are in a worship setting. And Paul's going to explain that. Number two, you can't have it both ways. You can't worship God and worship something else. And number three, you certainly don't want to provoke the Lord. That is definitely not what your goal should be. So it's these three things that we're going to look at in progression as we go through the rest of this text. So number one, Corinthians, you participate in worshiping something. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Paul's beginning to lay out his arguments that they are in fact participating in something. And he says this, first of all, when you come to the Lord's table, you participate in that, in the cup of blessing. Now what's the cup of blessing? Paul is referring here to the cup that Jesus blessed at the Last Supper the night before he was crucified. Mike just read it this morning in our call to worship. In the Passover feast, the Jews used a series of four cups uh, in, their, in their Passover celebration. Jesus most likely took the third cup that was coming through and he blessed it. He gave thanks over it. He said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's this cup that comes to symbolize the death of Jesus Christ. See, the blood of Jesus was spilled violently for the sins that you and I commit. It's this cup that Jesus passed around at that last supper that they all took part in. It's this same cup that was passed around in the Corinthian communion table and Lord's Supper. It's the same cup that you and I use. We use a whole bunch of little bitty cups, but it all comes out of the one cup. It's the cup that you and I use that we pass around that is symbolizing the blood that was spilled of Jesus Christ. It's this cup of blessing. And when you and I and when the Corinthians drink out of this cup, Paul is saying this, you participate in the blood of Christ. This word participation, it means that you have fellowship with, you have communion with, you have a sharing with the blood of Christ. In other words, when we drink the cup, when we come to the communion table and we drink the cup, we are fellowshipping with the one who shed his blood. We are having communion with Jesus Christ. We are coming and we're saying, I am a partaker. I participate with you, Jesus. It's a symbol of Christ's blood in which when we drink it, we say, I love you, Jesus. I'm thankful that I have participation with you. The same way with the bread. When we break the bread, it's a picture of the body of Christ. It's the bread of life, Jesus called himself. And he says, when you take this bread, you participate in the fellowship of Christ. You participate in the bread of life. You have life. You are a part of it. You're communion with it. You're communing with it. And so the cup and the bread are more than just symbols. It's not just some ritual that we go through that we just 
sort of eat the bread and drink the cup and we don't really know what it's about. It says, no, it's a time of joy. It's a time of communion. It's, it's a time of celebration. It's a sweet time of remembering what Jesus did for me on the cross. That's what this communion table is about. It, it's to elicit from me emotions of joy, emotions of satisfaction, emotions of wonderful memories of God's blessing in my life. Let me, let me illustrate it to you this way. About once a semester, I have to travel out of town uh, for a week uh, for school. Uh, and when I do that, it's not uncommon for my wife uh, to take a picture or two of the kids and send them to me. She'll text them to me. And I love when I open up my phone and, and there's a picture of my kids. Now, when I see the, that picture of my kids, it's not the pixels of color and black and white on the screen that make me excited. It's not as though my kids... My kids aren't there. I mean, my kids aren't in that device. But yet, when I look at that picture, it brings out of me emotions of love and and joy. And I just can't wait to get home and squeeze them. And and I I just want to kiss on them. And and it brings a big smile to my face. Because here's a picture of my kids. And and there's a note there that says, I love you. That's what the communion table is about. When you and I come to the communion table and we see the bread and we see the cup there, it's meant to elicit emotions of joy as we hear Jesus say, I love you. I gave my body for you. I gave my blood for you. And it makes us excited. It's it's not as though that bread and that that cup turn into Jesus. That's a symbol, but it reminds us of the reality of Jesus Christ. We participate with that. We have communion with that. And we rejoice in that. My, my sensitivities are heightened by the Holy Spirit when I participate in communion. That's Paul's point here. And he says, not only do you have participation vertically when you come to the communion table, you love Jesus and you, you worship Jesus and you're so excited by him but you also participate horizontally because those around you are also participating in the communion table. Um, Look at verse 17. Because there is one bread, he says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In other words, he says, when we come together and celebrate the communion and we have this oneness with God and this fellowship with Jesus Christ, we also have this oneness and this celebration with people around us because it's one body. It's one bread. It's one body. We commune together. We remember together. Together we acknowledge his lordship over our lives. Incidentally, that's why at Providence, when we come through the communion line, we don't eat and drink it here and put our cup and stuff back. We all take it back to our pews and we do it together. We all participate together. It's a oneness. It's a picture of our oneness with Christ and our oneness with those that we're participating with. I participate with Christ. I participate with my fellow believers. That's what Paul is trying to say here. Now, he illustrates this 
in verse 18 by referring to the children of Israel. He says in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? When an animal came to be sacrificed in the Hebrew sacrificial system, part of it was burned on the altar and part of it was eaten by the people who were there uh, worshiping. The underlying thought then was to share in the sacrifice that was offered there was to enter into relationship with that God and with those people that were around. To eat the meat that came off the Israelite, the Hebrew altar, was to worship Yahweh and was to worship with those around. It was a oneness here and it was a oneness here. That is Paul's point here. Now, let's, let's land this a little bit, okay? What is Paul then implying to the Corinthians? Paul's saying this. When you exercise your liberties, Corinthians, and you go into those pagan temples, when you walk in the doors and you sit down and there is pagan idol worship going on and you watch the worship that's happening there and you eat the meat that's coming off of that pagan idol's altar, you are participating in the worship. By eating the meat that's coming off of that table while you're sitting there in this worship setting, your participation in the eating of that meat says to those around you, I participate in the worship of that God and in worship with you. That's Paul's point here. Paul's saying, you're taking your liberties too far. Now the Corinthians are going to say something like this. No, we're not. We know that that's an idol. We know that that idol standing there in front of us means absolutely nothing. In fact, Paul, you yourself said back in chapter 8, which we studied a few weeks ago, you yourself said that that idol is nothing. We're not participating in any idol worship. We're just sitting here. We're... We're not doing anything. We're just watching what's going on around us. Don't you accuse us of idol worship. We're not participating. And Paul anticipates that question, and so he answers it in verse 19. He says this, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? The answer, of course, is no. I don't imply that the idol is anything. I agree with you on that point, Corinthians. But... What is the reality behind that idol? Verse 20. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul's saying, you're right. The idol is nothing. That's true. It's a stick. It's a stone. It's meaningless. But behind that idol stands a demon who is more than excited to take the worship that's due to God. And Satan has placed him there and is applauding him while he gets people to worship the idol, which is nothing, not realizing that there's a demon behind it who with glee is taking that worship, which should be to God. And so Paul's saying, Corinthians, when you're sitting in those temples 
And when you're there participating and you're eating that sacrificial meat that's coming off of those, off of those altars, you, in fact, are participating in their worship. And if their worship is not to Jesus and it's, in fact, to a demon, then you are participating in their demon worship. That is Paul's point. By participating in the meal, the Corinthians were participating vertically with that demon and horizontally with those pagan worshipers around them. What a dangerous place to be. And what they thought was simply an exercise of their liberties was in fact a dining with demons. What they thought was just an innocent, I'm not doing anything, I'm just sitting here. Paul's saying, oh no, no, it is far more than that. You're actually participating with those around you. You're participating in demon worship, in false worship. Now I told you that Satan's lies and Satan's methods and methodologies are exactly the same today as they were 2,000 years ago. It's true here too. Does false worship occur today? Of course it does. Satan is still around. Satan hasn't come up with any new lies. It's the same old lies, just repackaged in new ways. Satan still wants the glory of God. He's still setting up false religions, and he's still conning people into believing that they're right. Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy 4. He says this, Now the Spirit expressly says, that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, here it is, and teachings of demons. Paul says it's going to happen in the later times. The teaching of demons, they're going to set up the worship, and the people that participate, whether they know it or not, are worshiping a demon. Demons still prop up these false religions. What does it look like? How do we know? Well, Paul carries on in 1 Timothy 4, and he says, uh, these teachings of demons, through the sincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Listen to me, friends. There are false religions that forbid their pastors to marry. There are false religions that require abstinence from certain foods during parts of the year. That's a fulfillment of 1 Timothy 4. There are false religions today that add works of grace to, as a matter of salvation that say you must participate in mass in order to get grace. There are false religions that offer prayers uh, to dead saints on behalf of living people. There are false religions that call themselves witnesses of Jehovah but deny the full deity of Jesus Christ. There are false religions that believe Joseph Smith was given further revelation from God to guide his church and and they hold to the Book of Mormon to correct the errors that are supposedly in the Bible as we know it. There are false religions that teach that Allah is the one true God and that Jesus was but another prophet who was uh, superseded by Muhammad. There are false religions 
that teach that the ultimate reality of life is nirvana, found through successive lives in in which one benefits from previous life experience. On and on and on we could go with all of the false religions that Satan props up to divert glory from himself and onto something else. And Satan is the ultimate benefactor. Behind every false religion stands a demon ready and willing to take your worship. So what's Paul's instruction? Flee from idolatry. Do not be participants with demons. Do not enter into those worship settings and think that you won't be affected. Do not exercise your liberties going into those places say, well, I don't believe like that. I'm just going to sit here. Don't go and be a participant by just sitting there because you, in fact, are participating. Now, does that mean that there are no true believers in any of those settings? No, not necessarily. But if a believer thinks that he can go into those settings and just sort of sit in the back corner and watch and not be affected, they are terribly mistaken. If those worshiping around you think that you are just one of them, you are in a very precarious place. There's no magical contamination that occurs here, but the character of the participants and the demonic influence of the worship that's taking around you can have serious consequences on your soul. Don't flirt with fire and expect not to get burned. Paul says you can't have it both ways. In verse 21, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Participation with Christ and participation in false religion are mutually exclusive They are diametrically opposed to each other. They are kingdoms that do not coexist. And you need to decide which camp you're going to live in. That's Paul's admonition here. And if participation with demons continues, Paul says you may very well be disqualified in the Christian witness. You have to choose between Christ and Satan Flee from idolatry. Get out of there. John talks about fleeing and not participating. In his short letter in 2 John, he says this, whoever abides in the teaching has both father and son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching of the father and son, do not even receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked ways. In other words, if, if to participate with such a person, to receive such a person, is to be by association participating in their wicked ways. Paul says, don't even go there. This is serious stuff. It's difficult to hear, it's difficult to understand, but what Paul is talking about here are life and death matters. It should be serious, and that's why Paul calls them beloved. Because he says, I want you to know that I bring this issue up with you, Corinthians, because I care about you so much. 
I bring this issue up with you because I want you to succeed in the Christian walk. I don't want you to fail. I don't want you to be disqualified. And I would tell you as your pastor, I want nothing less for you. Paul ends by asking two questions in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do you want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Paul says, I don't think so. I don't think that's the direction you want to go. Why not? Because God is stronger. I'm not a very big guy. And when I was growing up, I learned early on not to pick on the guys that were bigger than me. Why? Because if I did, I was either going to end up with a bruise, or I was going to be in the trash can, or I was going to kiss the carpet, one of the three. That's Paul's illustration here. Paul says, the Lord is jealous for his name to be glorified. And the God will not let anything stand above his holiness. He is vigilant for his holiness. He is jealous for worship for him alone. And when you and I dare to walk where angels fear to tread, in places of false worship, be careful. Be careful. Don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. He will tarry long. But in the end, he will also discipline, if he must, to bring you back, to bring you back into true worship. And God is stronger. Satan will not win. He knows that. He knows he's defeated. He knows he's going to hell. He knows he's bound for the lake of fire. And so he knows the only thing he can do at this point is to get as many people to go with him as possible. He knows that God is stronger. So don't provoke him to jealousy. He's stronger than we are. Let me just conclude with these words by John Piper. He said this about this text. He said, this text is really about what you are, excuse me, what you do when you are not at the Lord's Supper. Because when you're at the Lord's Supper, we know who you are. We know what you're participating. This is about what you do when you're not at the Lord's Supper. It's about the threat of idolatry in your life every day. It's a word from God that says, what you experience with Christ in the Lord's Supper dare not, cannot be profaned during the week by your sitting down with the Feast of Idols. You know where that occurs in your life. So I say in the name of Christ, in the words of Paul, flee from idolatry this week. For at Christ's table, you sit with Jesus at the banquet of the benefits of his death and such an experience dare not be profaned. Folks, Satan is alive and well. He has false religions all over the place. And he would like nothing more than for you to exercise your liberties and show up there. Because in showing up there, you participate with those around you. Paul says, flee from that. Get away from that. Let your soul worship, your soul participation be with Jesus Christ at his table and no other. Let's pray. God... This is a powerful text. 
We know how easy it is to get our defenses up and how easy it is to say, I can go there, I can do that. I'm not participating, I'm just watching. I'm just there with a friend. I'm just whatever. God, help us to understand that our presence, if we are not actively proclaiming Jesus Christ and faith in Him alone, by grace alone, we're not doing those things and we're just merely being quiet in the background that we in fact are screaming multitudes to those around us Father help us to understand that any dabbling in false religion any participation in those worship settings is in fact demon worship Father, it's sobering, it's humbling, but I pray that you will help us to understand this text. Place, uh, Father, for places where I may have not been adequate in my understanding and explanation, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, teach us. Father, I pray that we would be a, fo- a, a people wholly devoted to you, that we would stand in awe of the one, Jesus Christ, who gave his all for us. And that as we participate in communion, be that often, uh, be that not as frequently as, as some or as we'd like, Father, as often as we participate, I pray that we would examine ourselves and say, is there idolatry? Have I participated in places where I shouldn't? Father, and bring us back to you. Draw us to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.